What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello everybody and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host Marcus Lehner and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, although the weather is absolutely abysmal today where we are up in the Northeast, which is pretty much par for the course in all seasons, we're going to be talking a lot about sunshine because our question today is, what if all life used photosynthesis? Photosynthesis requires water and rain as well. So today is also good for that. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I know plants actually do better on like partly cloudy days than on like full on blazing sun days or sunny days, blazing sunny days, Sundays, but not the day of the week Sundays. <laughs> I don't know if there's any correlation about plants being better off on Sundays than other days of the week. Maybe. But yeah, so basically we're going to take all life and the main energy source is going to be photosynthesis. Basically no more eating. This isn't just like bonus extra photosynthesis energy. This is everything's going to be running primarily on photosynthesis. It's replacing our eating. Yeah, exactly. I think it'll be a bit more, make a little bit more sense too once we start going through it. So Ben, I'm going to let you get us started off. Sure. So really what I wanted to look at um, was just can photosynthesis actually support the energy needs of a human? Is, you know, just by how photosynthesis works and what our body needs, is it even, you know, how much do we have to fudge the numbers basically for that to even work at all? I hope it works or else Marcus and I don't have an answer. <laughs> we're going to find out. We're going to find out. Or we're going to say, ignore all that as we go forward. Those are our options. That's all we got. Uh, so when we talk about the energy needs of a human, we're talking about calories. Technically, what we're talking about is kcals, because I think we've gone through this whole, you know, BS before. There's this annoying distinction between physics calories and food calories or kcals. In both cases, a calorie is a basically a unit of energy. Uh, in physics, a calorie is the amount of energy needed to raise the temperature of one gram of liquid water by one degree Celsius. On food, we have decided to go with kcals, which are a thousand of those, so the amount of energy needed to raise the uh, temperature of a kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. Very annoying that we decided that because it makes researching things really complicated sometimes, and you have to be very careful about that, but we carry on. It's really just annoying that we decide to not say kcals and just say calories instead. It's mostly that, yeah, because I feel like in Europe they say kcal on labels and things. Oh, they do. Yeah, the, the metric system turns out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of how much ener like the energy needs of a human, it's a little hazy, actually, how, how many calories humans actually need. So the UCLA Center for Human Nutrition says that eating fewer than 1,000 calories per day is the same physiologically as total starvation. So that could technically be like an absolute baseline. Um, in terms of a, like an, a healthy minimum, what I usually saw was somewhere from 1,200 to 1,600 calories. Um, on average, it's much higher than that. In the U.S., it's more like 2,500 calories per day for men, 2,000 for women. That's kind of ideally what we can get to using photosynthesis. So photosynthesis, the way it works right, is, you know, it's obviously more complicated than this, but we're effectively converting the energy from the sun into energy for whatever body is doing photosynthesis. And in that process, we're going to lose energy. I actually found there is a theoretical maximum efficiency of photosynthesis. And I'm not going to lie. 
I stared at an uh, Encyclopedia Britannica article for like half an hour trying to figure out a simple way to explain it. And listener, I could not do that. I really tried. It's weirdly complicated. Just the like effectively the unit conversion they're doing. It's related to, to basically the the energy used per quantity of light used in photosynthesis and also the energy that can be stored per quantity of oxygen produced. There are ratios. It's weird. Our main takeaway here is that the theoretical maximum efficiency of photosynthesis is 26%. So if you have a thousand calories of solar energy coming in, something is photosynthesizing that, that is effectively uh, 260 calories for them, right? That's the best you can do, which is obviously very rarely hit for many, many reasons. Um, but we're going to say, we're going to say that our perfectly evolved photosynthetic humans can hit this 26% efficiency because humans are good at things. <laughs> we're, we're just really, we're really, really solid. Yeah, just, you know, we're just gonna, we're... great at it. <laughs> and I'm also going to say, because this is something that I, I struggle with for a little bit. So in those caloric needs for, for humans, part of that is used for digestion. Um, our bodies use 10 to 15% of the calories we eat for digestion, which is kind of a weird chicken egg situation. And... Obviously, we're not going to be digesting anymore because we're not eating anymore, but there's also going to be some unknowable amount of energy needed for these photosynthetic processes. I'm just going to say they cancel out <laughs> and that the energy we currently use to digest is what we're going to use for our photosynthesis. That could be wrong in either direction, but I can't figure out what it would actually be, so we're going to go with that. <laughs> it's close enough for this podcast. Exactly. Anyway. It's close enough for our purposes. So the first question we have to answer is how much energy there actually is in sunlight. And that's going to vary. It's going to vary based on how much sunlight is hitting that area, you know, and, and various other factors. But the number I found for just sort of a sunny day, sun is directly overhead, you're going to get roughly 1,120 joules of energy per square meter on a like ground level horizontal surface. Um, and that number includes light that's scattered or re-emitted by the atmosphere and surrounding area. It's not just, that's not exclusive to the sunlight directly coming in from the sun. It includes all that, you know, scattering and whatnot that'll happen in the environment around it. One food calorie, one kcal, is equal to 4,184 joules. So that means that for every one second of sunlight, we are getting, or, or sorry, for every 3.7 seconds of sunlight, we are getting one calorie of energy which means that an hour of direct heavy sunlight is going to give you approximately 973 calories worth of light. Although once we take that through our efficiency, we get down to actually about 253 calories per square meter per hour, which honestly is more promising than I expected, but we have two things we have to answer, right? That's per square meter, and we don't actually know how much sun we can get onto a human. And also that's only under ideal sun conditions. So let's look at these one at a time. So first question which I feel like I've had to answer before. How much surface area does a human have? <laughs> We've definitely answered that before. I've definitely had to do this before. I also definitely had to Google how much skin does the average human have? And yes, I'm almost certainly on some kind of watch list now because of that. The answer, conveniently enough, is 22 square feet or two square meters. Two square meters is great because due to how lines work, we can really only point half our skin towards the sun at a time in a best case scenario. So, Oh, that's how lines work. All right, children, point your skin towards the sun, please. It's time for breakfast. So that two square meters is actually great because it means that in our idealized pointing as much skin as possible towards the sun at a time, we can get one square meter towards it. I also found out, by the way, 
in the process of learning this, now you have to learn it too, that our skin is roughly 16% of our body mass on average, which means that a 180 pound person has about 30 pounds of skin, which I weirdly hate thinking about. It's just a lot of skin and I don't like it. I actually live with that now and so do you. So, you know, just deal with it, I guess. I don't like the I don't like the, the, the concept that really we are just like a bag of flesh more than we are like a, you know, a solid, well put together yeah. <laughs> robot of flesh, you know, like we're more bag flesh bag than like bone robot. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a 30 pound skin sack with meat inside. Yeah, it's not great. So that is that's our, our surface area. And conveniently, it happens to track exactly with our other numbers. So that's awesome. Great. Let's go away from that idealized sun scenario. Um, so first question I had to answer, will we die if there's a week where it's cloudy? <laughs> because that's something that would be a problem, obviously. Uh, the answer is probably not. Generally, a person can survive for one or two months without food. So obviously, you wouldn't want to go to, you know, the Arctic where you have six months of no sun or whatever. Like, that would be a bad idea. But if there's a cloudy week or two, it won't be great, but you'll be able to survive it. So given that, how much sun do we actually need annually? On that survival number, if we say it's 1,200 calories per day, that's about four hours, 44 minutes of sunlight per day. For those averages of 2,500 calories for men, 2,000 for women, that's either a little under 10 hours for men or a little under eight hours for women. I looked up the sunniest place in the world. happens to be Yuma, Arizona, according to the World Meteorological Organization. They average 4,015 hours of sunshine per year overall, which is around 11 hours per day or... 2,783 calories, which is obviously more than enough. Even if we cut our efficiency down to half of that theoretical maximum, down to 13%, we still wind up with 1,391 calories, which is a couple hundred above that survival number. So could humans be photosynthetic? It obviously depends on a lot of caveats, but yes, question mark, if you are in an area that has a reasonably large amount of sun. What? Uh because Marcus mentioned the overcast thing and plants being good in overcast. Is that not a, I don't exactly know how that applies. So basically what I try to do by getting that like hours of sunshine is just cut through that, right? You know, cut past any daily variance, overcast days, things like that. Just get straight to like how much sunlight are you getting? So my rationale being, okay, if a few days without sun aren't going to kill us, we conceivably will be able to survive those quote-unquote dry spells as long as we have enough overall sun throughout the year, right? Yeah, so it really breaks down to like, and, and the numbers work out pretty much the same for like, I got I got similar numbers from like solar panels and things where of like the thousand um, or you have 1200 watts per square meter at high noon, you get about, if you do like a daily average, you get about 25% of that. Yep, yeah. If you take and, you know, fact, get rid of half it for nighttime and the rest for cloudy days and angles, like that's basically what they use for like those kinds of calculations. So your, your, your numbers are about right. Yeah, it's not going to lie. There's some hand waving. But overall, assuming some maybe ambitious efficiency numbers, it is theoretically possible. I'm also really glad that it did work out pretty cleanly because the alternative was figuring out how to redesign humans to be terrifying, large, flat solar panel people. And I didn't want to have to do that. <laughs> so instead, we can just be normal people who have to also, by the way, be naked because we need all our skin exposed. Uh, okay. Forgot to bring that up. <laughs> so, yeah. Embrace the nudist photosynthetic future. Uh, Marcus, what did you do? Well, I mean... <laughs> You know, my, my manhood's got a lot of surface area, so I'm really going to need that extra efficiency. There you go. <laughs> oh. oh, I asked Marcus what did you do, but I don't think he heard me. 
Oh, no, I didn't. Because you want to talk about your penis. All right. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I kind of expanded from uh, rather than doing all Oh, you expanded? But, yeah, I expanded uh, just to get that extra surface area. But no, what, what I looked at was the animal kingdom. Like, if we're switching the main resource to sunlight as opposed to, you know, eating each other, what does that competition look like? What kind of life is going to kind of evolve out of this? Right, because we said all life, not just humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're going into the rest of the life. So really, the first rule of the jungle is to make like a tree and be really, really tall. Again, at a base at a base level, the resource you're competing for is sunlight, and the simplest way to get it is to be the tallest. That's why when you have all these rainforests and everything, that's why trees are so freaking tall, so that they can get the sun above all the other plants and compete that way. So really, you're looking for, like, ideal first stage animals. Like, you get a giraffe with a big flathead. Like, that's going to be your, like, base level. This is a good evolutionary step. But that got me thinking about, like, what happens to small animals now. Because if you have this big shady umbrella giraffe... Now, the, the shady forest floor is not cool and protected and cozy. It's literally, like, starvation zone. These smaller animals are just not going to be able to be in a sunny spot for long enough, assuming that there's a bunch of bigger animals taller than them. So, will the small animals just starve? Well, no. What they're going to end up doing is they're going to just start climbing the bigger animals. Because even better than being the biggest thing around is climbing on top of the biggest thing around. Because now you're just sitting on top of that in the sunny spot. So really like, because it's kind of tough to be very big and energy efficient with photosynthesis, because as your, you know, your volume scales up cubically as you get bigger and your surface area for photosynthesizing only goes up uh, squarely by a power of two. So as you get bigger, it's harder and harder to have the same ratio of sunlight to energy that, you're, that you need from it. So small animals are gonna have a lot more leeway to spend a bunch of energy moving around and climbing on top of things. So to me, like the ground creatures in the forest or wherever they are, it's going to be a real competition between the small animals aggressively climbing, like the tallest nearby one, and the tall animals desperately trying to shake off the small ones so that their own solar surfaces aren't being covered, which is kind of a special kind of hell if you think about it a little bit too much. So even, even better than dealing with that whole shit show is just to ignore the whole thing and go flying up above. Birds kind of, I think, really got it going for them in this photosynthesis world because they, one can be as high as they want, they can just fly, and even if they're not flying, they can kind of perch in positions that other mammals can't reach because, you know, some, there's a lot of places in the world that you can't get to with that if you just have stupid little legs. Wings are a big factor. So what I wanted to look at was if you got a bird continuously gaining energy from the sun, do they ever even need to land? Like, could you have a, a quote-unquote infinity bird <laughs> that just takes off and then never, ever lands because it's got everything it needs up in the sky? So the most efficient flyer in the animal kingdom is the wandering albatross, which I'm going to preface and say the albatross is actually incredibly badass. Like, the, I, I think I double-checked the numbers on efficiency and things for albatross so many times because I was like, there's no way that this is, like, actually accurate and comparative. But let me, let me run through it real quick. So albatross, for those who don't for those who don't know, is it kind of looks like a big seagull. It's like a it's a seabird. It's big. Uh, it has an eleven foot six wingspan. It's I think the biggest like ocean dwelling bird. They generally spend most of their time over the ocean. Uh, weighs about sixteen pounds. Eleven foot six wingspan. Wings are just nine inches wide though. Very skinny wings. And similar to the humans, this actually conveniently equates to about one square meter of surface area for those calculations. So again, I get to like quote unquote skip that step because I just multiply by one. 
I actually just looked up a picture of the albatross right now. It's the first time I've seen an albatross, actually. I didn't know what they looked like before. I think I just always confuse them with seagulls. They're just big seagulls that yeah. are slightly different shapes. I mean, I guess the only reason I know an albatross is is because of golf. Oh, that, that the word even exists? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you got that. I, I think I know it from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. They have an albatross in there. I mean, it's dead, but uh, <laughs> that was a problem. So, basically, albatrosses are crazy efficient flyers. The albatross flies with an energy usage of 4 watts per kilogram. For, so for every kilogram the bird weighs, it uses 4 watts of energy, which would be 4 joules per second. To kind of put that in perspective, this is less energy they use than when they're sitting on dry land. So, like, they have a bunch of different things that help. One, they use, like, a very specific method of riding like like some you know like some birds of prey like ride thermals and then like use those to gain altitude the albatross actually has it like down to a science where part of the reason it goes like over the ocean is that it can like read wind patterns and it goes through like a very specific cycle of like gaining altitude by flying into headwinds at like a diagonal and then turning into the wind to like go uh to glide and gain distance which equates to they basically spend no energy they don't even have to worry about, like, muscle cramps or anything because their joints literally just lock in place in the glide position. So they'll fly, and they can maintain speeds, like, of 80 miles an hour for up to, like, eight hours as they're traveling. These birds will cover five to 600 miles each day that they're traveling over the ocean, which, crazy nonsense wild. So going through kind of similar energy usage calcs versus uh, sunlight gathered to maintain their four watts per kilogram that they use gliding, they, for a 16-pound bird, they're going to need 29 watts of energy, which means they need 29 joules of energy every second. So how efficient does it need to be to get that 29 watts out of one square meter of surface area that it has? The efficiency it needs is 8.6%, which is pretty freaking feasible. Excuse me. Feasible. (laughs) It's pretty freaking feasible. (laughs) (laughs) So as far as, like, energy requirements go... This bird never needs to land. And then you're like, well, it does need to go get water at some point, right? You can't just be, like, chilling over the ocean forever. Turns out, Albatross just drinks salt water and doesn't care. It's got salt glands. And drinks salt water. Wow. Yeah, it just drinks salt water as its main water source. Um, it's not unique in that respect. There's, there's a few, like, few ocean birds that do that. But, yeah, so it's just, like, has specific glands and uh, metabolic processes to, like, take that extra excess salt out of the, the water they drink and they're really good at getting it like out of their systems. So yeah, as far as like like land and air creatures, the albatross basically doesn't even have to do any it doesn't have to evolve any further. It just already can do the thing. Are there other birds that like lock their joints and stuff and like you said other birds drink salt water as well, but is it just the albatross that can do this or are there other ones? Uh, I'm not sure. I believe there are. I'm not sure how common the, the joint locking is. I'm pretty sure a lot of the, like, a bunch of the migratory birds do it. I know that I was doing bird research at one point, and there were definitely birds that would, like, sleep while flying in formation or something. Like, not all of them would stay awake at, you know, not all of them would sleep, obviously, at the same time, but they were capable of flying while effectively napping, at least. Which would require some so some probably, amount of yeah probably yeah. some other birds as well yeah I, I I did also like like when I was do, I was trying to figure out how long they actually stay aloft and it can be for you know eight hours plus it can be for like days but it's kind of tough to tell because 
there's a stupid freaking like fun fact that goes around where it's like albatross go for six years without touching dry land, but they'll land on the ocean surface. But because that fact is out there as the fun fact about albatross, it's almost impossible to find how much they act, how long they actually maintain their air speeds. But I, I, I've seen definitely eight hours plus, so they can keep it going, and they generally land to hunt and you know drink. So they don't need to hunt, land to hunt anymore. So they don't even need to go get that energy. But having our our, our friendly ocean bird rocking it got me thinking about the ocean because the ocean environment's a bit different than land. The main difference being that in this hypothetical, like getting to the top, like the animals are competing to get high as they can, it's a bit different than the water surface because the top is there. It's the it's the top of the ocean. So all sea life is going to be competing to be the thing floating at the top. There's not really any need to get particularly tall or anything. You can just float there. So even though like sunlight does penetrate into the water fairly deeply, like you can sunlight penetrates in like a reasonable amount up to like 600 feet. I imagine the surface of the ocean is basically going to be straight animals because everything from any depth needs to be at the top in order to survive. So who's on top? What is the biggest, baddest sea creature that's going to be the best off from an evolutionary standpoint? And I think it's just going to be the jellyfish. Jellyfish, what they got going for them, one, they already have the ability to very easily stay afloat and not have to spend very much energy doing it. They passively protect their tor- territory also from other fish muscling, and, like, they'll still be able to use their stingers and stuff to kind of keep their zone unoccupied. Another cool fact, actually, jellyfish are also really energy efficient as far as swimming goes. They didn't think they were for a while because, like, so basically when a jellyfish swims, they, you know, close up their big bell, and that pushes the water out, and that kind of jets them forward a bit. So that was thought to be, like, you know, theoretically not that efficient a process, like, you know, it'd be like generally a bit worse than how fish swim around. But it turns out that that motion of pushing the water out, additionally, like the water that gets pushed out creates a vortex behind the jellyfish that the ocean surrounding ocean water comes to fill in. And it creates a positive pressure. So even when they're like expanding their bell out, they're still getting pushed by like a water vortex that just doesn't take them energy to produce. And it seems like a silly little bonus efficiency, but it actually contributes to about like 30% of their forward acceleration when they're swimming. So really like they push the water out, but actually like just the motion of the ocean behind them like doubles their ability to go forward, which is pretty awesome. That's just more a fun fact. So really the jellyfish, what I wanted to look into was how big can a jellyfish get in the ocean? So if it's, if it's just going to sit there and float and suck up all the photosynthesis, how good and how big a jellyfish can you get? So before I went deep into the calcs, I decided to give our jellyfish a leg up on the competition via an ability of its cousin, the octopus. So plants actually kind of suck at photosynthesis <laughs> in general. Ben, you were saying like the theoretical max rate is 26%. The average plant, like that's just like a vine or, you know, a shrub has about a photosynthesis efficiency of about like a tenth of a percentage yeah it's very low (laughs) yeah like 0.1 to 0.2 percent uh and even ones that are like evolved to do well mostly our crop plants that we've been breeding and you know genetically engineering to be more efficient for growing like kind of caps out at like four to five percent uh efficient i I think the highest is sugarcane oh i think i would maybe the same study was about six and a half percent right which the theoretical like based on um Certain things that we know we can do, we might be able to get six and a half percent on like agricultural crops. Yeah, exactly. So like, yeah, cr- like six and a half. I think I saw sugarcane at eight somewhere. I was like the like the absolute maximum number I saw. 
And so one of the reasons that plants are bad at photosynthesis is one, they just evolutionarily, they didn't need to produce more energy. They produce enough energy for themselves. Like you can get things like trees, like you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to get more energy to become bigger than a tree really. But one, of the, one piece of evidence, funnily, that shows plants are not the most efficient at photosynthesis is the fact that they're green. So plants appearing green means that green light is the type of light reflecting off of them that they're not absorbing to do photosynthesis. Green light actually makes up the largest portion of the light spectrum and therefore would provide the most energy. So, like, a theoretically, if a plant was absorbing all the, the visible spectrum light in a way that was very efficient, all plants would be black. It's not quite to the extreme that they absorb no green light. They actually do do a decent job. They absorb about like 90% of the green spectrum. Um, but chlorophyll is just not very good. It's, it's less efficient at absorbing it. I kind of went into why because it was kind of an unanswered question for a lot of the articles that were like talking about it. But they did one study where it turns out that green light is like the most energetic. And it makes it tough for the chlorophyll to process because when you have it, it excites the process almost too fast for the rest of the photosynthesis process to keep up. And when you have fluctuations, it goes from like, you know, zero to a hundred too often to be like consistent. So they like having the, the blue and the red wavelengths are a bit more consistent for like the biological systems. Basically summary, the disadvantage, like the one disadvantage that plants have is that they can only absorb light based on the color of their leaves and what wavelengths those leaves block and allow in as far as light goes. And they've picked for them a, a practical color. If you look at it, an octopus, though, an octopus can change its skin colors however it wants. It doesn't have to just stick with being green. Octopus's skin is pretty crazy. It's actually comprised of, like, several layers. Like, the outer layer, there's, like, a clear slash pigmented layer where they have a bunch of cells containing different colored pigments. And the way they change colors is by those individual cells uh, expanding or contracting. So you can imagine, like, a really tiny red dot expanding, you know, surrounded by a little bit of clear, expanding into a big red dot and compressing the clear around it in order to make it appear more red. And then in addition to that, they have another layer too um, below that where they have pigments that are more reflective. So they can use this to, they can use these reflective cells to brighten up and like capture, you know, brighter colors to better match. And then below the reflective layer, there's another layer of like, quote-unquote rough skin that's used to disperse and scatter light to not show up. So between the different types of cells it has, the octopus has the tools to do whatever the heck it wants with light. It can change, it can like allow different wavelengths in, it can reflect it. If, it. if that's more efficient, it can like scatter it if it wants to get rid of something. It can do whatever the hell it wants. And once it has a motive to do that to maximize photosynthesis, I think it's going to be able to naturally work on doing that by, you know, basically make itself the best color for the light that's coming into it. And that'll even impact, like, if the sun's setting, like, you know, how the, like, the sky changes color from, you know, blue to sunset colors. And basically that's showing the angle of, the angle of light being the, that's the most common is basically what makes the sky the color it is. So you'll get better efficiencies with different colors throughout the day. So that's all a big room roll of just saying octopuses are cool. And when I talk about how big jellyfish are going to get, I'm setting the efficiency to 20% out of this 26% saying that, hey, one, it can manipulate its colors. Two, you can have, like, multiple layers of photosynthetic skin if you want. Like, it could be, like, a multi-layer photosynthesis capture. You could have, like, the outer layer capture blue, and then the next one I, you know, set up for red. You can do whatever you want because you got, like, clear jelly skin. So to get an idea of the energy requirements for a jellyfish, it was tough to find. Again, this is one of those ones where the, the research got 
hammered by the fun fact of the extra energy efficiency of jellyfish swimming basically overrode every search result for how much energy they just use day to day, like how much fish does a jellyfish eat to maintain its uh, day to day operations. So under the hope that they would end up being big, I just switched to use a blue whale as a touch point for mass versus energy requirements. So a 107-ton blue whale consumes 65 kilowatts of energy. That's what I use for my... I scaled from there as my energy comparison point. Uh, and then how much does our jellyfish weigh? The lion's mane jellyfish has about a six-foot diameter bell and weighs about 200 pounds. Lion's mane jellyfish is one of the big jellies. So putting all those comparison numbers in and then running the surface area kind of just as a, a hollow sphere of a radius to collect my sunlight... The turn point where you no longer absorb enough sunlight to survive is at about five meters. So basically 15 foot, and this is radius, so 30 foot diameter color shifting jellyfish are going to surround, be basically just be covering our whole ocean. And when the sun sets, they're all going to change color and it's going to be both rad and squishy. I like both rad and squishy. <laughs> <laughs> There you have it, Chris. What did you What did you take What did you take a look at? So when I looked at photosynthesis, I wanted to look at like the byproducts of photosynthesis and like more the chemical process, basically, because it is a chemical process that turns carbon dioxide, water, and light energy into sugars and oxygen. And then, as Ben and Marcus have said, it uses that sugar as food. But what it does with the oxygen in, in the excess water is it releases it into the atmosphere, which we as people breathe, which is important. So, yeah, normally animals, we don't go through photosynthesis. We go through what's called cellular re respiration, which is basically breathing. It's basically the opposite of photosynthesis, uh, where we turn oxygen and sugars into, into carbon dioxide, water, and energy. And then we release the carbon dioxide into the atmosphere instead of oxygen. So these two processes basically just balance each other out. There's a constant cycle of carbon dioxide and oxygen throughout the atmosphere. And there has been recent concerns about like an imbalance because human activity and like burning fossil fuels and all that has kind of resulted in a rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But if everything uses photosynthesis, my thought was that we would have the opposite problem. So the balance would be off in the other direction. We'd have too much oxygen, not enough carbon dioxide. If this is true, photosynthesis requires carbon dioxide. So if we run out of carbon dioxide, that's not good. Everything dies then. So how bad is the problem actually is what I want to look into. So I started with how much CO2 people just breathe out normally. The average human breathes out about 2.3 pounds of CO2 every day. It depends on your activity level, but that was sort of just like an average for like an average activity level. Hashtag what's my carbon footprint? Two pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and that means that globally humans breathe out about 3.3 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. But that's just humans. Uh, we're saying that all animals also go through photosynthesis, so this would affect them as well. Humans only make up 3% of the biomass of all animals, so we'd have to scale up that number. If we scale it up based on the biomass, then all animals collectively breathe out about 110 billion tons of carbon dioxide each year. Now, my original thought was that we would lose all of this because we're no longer breathing, but that's not actually true. I learned a couple days ago, it's probably something that I should have known a long time ago, 
or I feel like I should have learned it like as a kid is that plants actually do breathe. So my understanding of photosynthesis originally was like, it was pretty simple. Like people breathe in oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide, plants breathe in carbon dioxide, breathe out oxygen. And then it was just like, they're the opposite and it's that cycle. But it turns out that photosynthesis isn't actually like a replacement for breathing. Plants do breathe and obviously they don't have lungs, so they don't breathe like us, but they do technically go through respiration. So what happens is the photosynthesis, it produces sugar and oxygen, that oxygen is released into the atmosphere, but then it reabsorbs some of that oxygen and uses that oxygen to break down the sugar and convert that into energy. So the photosynthesis itself doesn't create energy, it's the breaking down afterwards. And that breathing also produces carbon dioxide and water. So plants do emit carbon dioxide, it's just they also emit oxygen, and it sort of outweighs it. So that means that animals, even though we are going through photosynthesis, we do still breathe. So our source of CO2 is not an issue, it's not going to go away. So that's a good thing. And there are a few other sources of CO2 as well. I'll, I'll go into that later. But first, I want to look at the the oxygen side of things. So our source of CO2 isn't a problem, but having too much oxygen could still be a problem. Oh, oxygen is just po- oxygen is strictly good, right? You just got use <laughs> more oxygen is better. <laughs> yeah, because now we basically have like we're just adding more things that produce oxygen. High levels of oxygen in the atmosphere could make things like it makes fires more likely because it's uh i don't think it's flammable but it like i actually don't know it's not flammable right <laughs> no actually oxygen, oxygen air air with enough oxygen in it is flammable i remember there was like in my high school chemistry class they, they were doing the like they captured like oh hey this beaker should have captured like a whole bunch of co2 from this reaction this beaker should be kind of more full of oxygen from this reaction so it was like here watch this match and they're like, yeah, watch this match go out when I put it in, like, the CO2. <laughs> Only they had mixed up the beakers. Luckily, it wasn't a very big beaker, but they put the match over on the oxygen side, and it made a pretty big flame for a second before they're like, whoops, not that one. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it needed, like, another fuel source or not or something, and the oxygen just, like, accelerated it or, like, that way. I didn't know if uh, oxygen was, like, flammable itself, though. But I think it might be. I believe it is. Yeah, oxygen. It's a, yeah. Quick Google says oxygen is not flammable, but it causes the materials that burn to ignite more easily and far more burn far more rapidly. Yeah. Either way, it's a problem <laughs> because we don't want Earth to be a giant fireball. The second thing, or the second like outcome of having extra oxygen in the atmosphere, is very big bugs. Apparently, um, so insects and other bugs they breathe in through tiny tubes called trachea, and the atmosphere currently has 20% oxygen in the atmosphere. Back in the prehistoric times, like around 300 million years ago or something, the air had 30% oxygen instead of 20%. And during that time, bugs were very big. There were dragonflies that were like hawk size, and there were spiders that were like smaller bird size. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to see how much of like... How much is this oxygen going to be an issue? Are we going to get those like big bugs and stuff? So I looked at how much plants produce oxygen first, because that's what we have data on. So land and ocean plants combined release 330 billion tons of oxygen per year. And if you scale that up 
or if you like add on what the animals would would add to that just based on the ratio of biomass for animals so animals are their biomass is 0.4% of what plants are so we'd only add 1.5 billion tons to that 1.5 billion sounds like a lot but compared to 330 billion is really not that much and normally this oxygen gets converted into other things so it doesn't just like stay in the atmosphere so 77% of that oxygen it gets converted through aerobic respiration so breathing 17% gets converted through something called microbial oxidation and then 4% gets converted through combustion of fossil fuels so all those chemical reactions reduce the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere and keep a good balance now the aerobic respiration still happens because as i established we we still breathe so that's good that's still happens the microbial oxidation is is when microorganisms they oxidize inorganic compounds for energy so they're like breaking down non-organic things to fuel themselves i consider that sort of a form of eating i don't necessarily know but um in my interpretation of this this would be replaced by photosynthesis so this wouldn't happen anymore yeah i was thinking along the same lines i, I, I was thinking about doing the the poop problem because if something dies there's no longer anything to go and decompose it and it's gonna be but it got a bit gross and i decided maybe one day maybe maybe for one time i won't do the poop problem <laughs> would we have a uh, we're not eating anymore would we poop i guess it wouldn't be poop it would just be corpses yeah it's a corpse problem <laughs> so that 17 percent that we uh of the oxygen that we convert through that uh wouldn't happen anymore so we'd have basically an extra 17 percent of oxygen in the atmosphere so that totals to 57.6 billion tons of extra oxygen that we don't normally have. That doesn't actually make too big of a difference because, like, if you look at the biomass, it sort of makes sense. Plants make up 83% of all biomass on Earth. Animals only make up 0.36%. And then my microorganisms make up 14%. So comparatively to the plants, like, the animals and microorganisms are nothing. Saved by our own insignificance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that 17% increase in oxygen will still result in, like, big bugs, which isn't great. Yeah, because oxygen is, what, 17, 17% of the atmosphere, 13%? It's 20, I think it was, like, 20%. So it goes up to, like, 25 then? or Yeah, something like that. R roughly something like that. Somewhere around there, yeah. But I don't think it, like, kills us or anything. But if we do want to try to avoid this big bug world, then we can try to control it. Um, we can't control the oxidation thing. That's just what it is. It is what it is. We can control the combustion thing, though. So I listed 4% of oxygen is converted through combustion of fossil fuels. So to maintain a balance, we need to increase that from 4% to 21%. So we basically just make up the difference by burning things, which is easier because there's a lot of oxygen. <laughs> and also a lot of incentive to burn very big bugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uncontrolled fires are bad, especially in a high oxygen environment. But if we do like controlled fires, uh, we can burn off oxygen. We can produce more CO2 for our photosynthesis and maintain a balance. And I was looking at things we can burn. You mentioned the decomposition thing. Things aren't going to be decomposing anymore. So we can burn dead bodies like animals and we can cremate our dead. We can also burn more fossil fuels to save the environment. <laughs> Um, we can burn more trees to save the environment because I guess trees are kind of not good for the environment anymore, sort of, because they're just contributing to the problem now. Yeah, I'll say this too. One other thing is that 
you know, if we have all these animals competing for being in the sunlight, they're just going to climb the trees. Trees are not going to be well off. Yeah, probably, because they can't move and shake things off. But, um, yeah, basically, we're just going to have giant bonfires. I don't know. Maybe we'll have, like, celebrations every few, like, a couple times a year or something just to burn a bunch of things and save the environment. I like it. I like I like anything where we light everything on fire at the end of it. Controlled. We don't want the entire world to burn, but we want to control the burns. We didn't start the fire. Well, actually, we did. It was important. We saved the planet. <laughs> All right. And with that, we can move over to our would you rather question. Marcus, are you ready for would you rather? I am ready. Would you rather never be tired but need to sleep 15 hours a day? Or always be tired, but only have to sleep four hours a day. Wait, you can. All right. So, do I want to sleep fifteen hours a day, or continue my? Current yeah, I was gonna say plan. you can. My you can probably life. have both of these options available to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I had the experience this morning where I woke up like, you know, it's a weekend day today, so I woke up early, and I'm like, damn it! <laughs> like, it's, it's like when you wake up, and I'm like, I'm still tired and want to sleep more, but I know based on what my body's where my body's right now it's never gonna fall back asleep yeah yeah i feel like my my like internal clock has like a more than 24 hour clock because mm-hmm. <laughs> i get tired it takes me longer than 24 hours to get tired so like if i went like completely on my internal clock then i would just get screwed up with the days i will say i think i am i'm really getting into my early stages of adulthood here where the body stops being so so springy and, and joyful I'm really interested in the never be tired because I feel like I get more done in like my one good hour of productivity than I do like the rest of the day combined. So if I could get like seven non-tired productive hours each day, like that's so good. The other problem you're going to have with your your nine productive hours is that you do still have to work. Yeah. Which is going to take up most of those nine hours. You're not going to have a lot of time. But I imagine if I'm that if I'm that energetic for nine hours, I feel like I would just be doing such good things. Like I would have I would I would carve out like a, you know, a job for myself through my continuous motivation to like not work 40 hours a week. You would be at peak productivity. Yeah, I feel like I could do like a lot of jobs in like four hours and like still have it count as an eight hour day. I'd have to find something specific that works for my situation. But again, motivated. Gonna find it. I'm considering this a magic power. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I have really high confidence in what I could accomplish if I just felt, like, energetic and motivated all the time. And then the the, the flip of the coin is a more normal life. A a more normal life. Like, four hours. Yeah, sleeping four Four hours hours isn't a lot, though. Four hours is not a lot of sleep. But, I mean, I guess we're saying that in order to be healthy, you only need four hours. But you'll just be generally tired. And there's nothing you can do about the tiredness. It's not like if you sleep more, then you won't be tired. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. It is annoying socially to only be up seven hours. Yeah. Nine hours. Nine hours, sorry. Still, nine hours. Because like, it's, it's, like, it's like nine to, nine to six is kind of your, is kinda your go, is, is your jam. Ten to seven. I'd say ten to seven, probably. I mean, I guess that's, those are kind of normal like hours to do things. They're normal hours to do things. They're not like... 
it, it sucks to be like to like leave everything you're doing at like seven. You're always the person who has to go home. It's like it's like having kids. You, you got you gotta always you always gotta <laughs> go home early because you got it's like oh gotta gotta go to bed. Yeah, you basically don't have a personal life during the week. Only on the weekends you can have like do things fun with friends and stuff. Yeah, because even even if you can work out to where you're only working like four hours a day or whatever, your friends aren't gonna be doing that. <laughs> So you get like an hour, hour and a half of socializing before you got to head home and go to sleep. I do like binging shows too. We'd have to give that up. You got no time for shows. No time for shows. I'm trying to decide if I'd be more, like, which one I'd be more productive per day in. Oh, for me, it's the nine hours. No question. For me, it's not even particularly close, but that's just my own interpretation of my productivity. You get a lot more time though. Like it's, yes, it's less productive per hour. You have over twice as much time. Yeah. So it'll take you longer to do things, but you have a lot more time. Like, even if it takes you 12 hours to do what would would have taken you four hours to do on your, like, super sleep life, you still only have five hours of free time and super sleep versus eight and tired man. I don't know. I need better names for these situations. (laughs) Super sleep and tired man. Super sleep and tired man. I don't know. Nine hours is just not that much time. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the productivity, I think I would lean towards four hours of sleep. But in terms of like feeling good, I, I would lean towards the other the other way. I just I feel like assuming I have to support myself, right? Assuming I have to work for money to live, I don't think the nine hours of uh, nine hour days is going to work very well. It just sucks to be tired all the time. Like being tired is a is not a good feeling. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This is this is one of those ones where. I'm going to answer I want to be awake and excited because that, that's – I feel like my life would be – like there's higher upside. Like my life could be more excited. I'm going to go down a path like if I'm just like going that hard all the time. But if you really made me like put a gun to my head in real life, made me choose, I'd probably end up picking the, the four hours be, of sleep. You'd be tired, man. tired, yeah. man. <laughs> stick, with, stick with what you know. <laughs> so if, if, we're, if we're keeping count, I'm picking – Shoot, what do we call tired it? Man, tired man, super sleep. Super sleep. Super sleep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm picking super sleep. Which one is the main hero, and which one's the sidekick? Uh, I think tired man is the main character, and super sleep is the annoying foil to him, who like shows up. <laughs> oh, and, so like, they're you adversarial. Know... Yeah, they're not like sidekick and no, no, no. They're against each other. Yeah, super sleep comes in at the end of the episode to fix all the problems exactly. tired man has caused. I, I am far more of a realist than Marcus is. I, I am tired man. There's just no, I, I'm tired man. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm going to choose Tired Man as well. It's just the extra time, even if it's not super efficient. I like kind of just chilling and doing nothing and being tired and like watching a show. That's fun. Yeah, no, I enjoy that. So, but I'm going to still I'm going to still stick with Super Sleep. It it, it feels right if I had to, if I was going to get a real choice. But anyway, that's our would you rather. If you and we all know we are. If you are also tired man or tired woman or tired person, it means you are in the perfect mental space to listen to our podcast but if you got 20 whole hours to fill up sometimes there's not enough podcast for you to listen to we have a solution for just a dollar you can go onto our patreon www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals and become a patron then when you are one of our good absurd hypothetical pals you get access to our bonus content that we release each month exclusively for our patrons we do a one episode each month and when you sign up you get access to all of them that we've ever done God, there's got to be 50 of the freaking things by now, at least. I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I think we're, I think uh, we're close yeah, to that. Yeah, maybe, I guess. They're not all called the same thing. 
Yeah, we used, they used to be behind the scenes about making the show, and then we realized there's only so much to talk about about making a podcast. So we've gotten to more casual chats, fireside chats, we call them now. But it's all good stuff. If you are, um, if you're super asleep and you're listening to this and your mind is racing and you're like, wow, they really should have done something like this, or oh, they're doing this question, but you know what also be cool? What if this happened? That means you have a cool question idea. Send it to us. Best way, probably by email, absurdhypotheticals at gmail.com, easy to remember. Or if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can just put it right in the comments below. I'm pointing to them, but again, this is an audio format, so you can't see, um, even though you're on the YouTube, so that's a shame. But yeah, those are two best ways to get your questions, and we are more than happy to turn your question into a full-on episode that'll be immortalized forever on this podcast, and you can have each of us spend, respectively, hours researching the idea that you put into our brains. And... If all the stuff we're talking about is things that you like, including this th- the whole episode you just listened to, let us know. Leave us a review on your podcast player, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this. There's always a, re- a spot for putting reviews. Um, leaving a review helps the show in a very free way. Uh, it doesn't cost you a dime, just a little bit of time. And the more reviews we have, the more the show pops up on search results, the more people who find the show are willing to give it a listen if they see some good reviews along with it. So it really helps the show grow organically. So yeah. You can let everyone know how much you love the show right there in all those different review spots. But in any case, that is it for today's episode. You can join us next week where we answer the following question. Which Disney princess would have the best crime spree? (laughs) 